Well, this last week, I uh, went with a friend over to Glazed Donuts to get some coffee and donuts. Uh, uh, I don't even know this right now. Uh, Glazed has these uh, pumpkin spice donuts with cream cheese frosting, and uh, they're delicious. So uh, we each got a couple of donuts, so we went back over to, to my house, uh, and I, I consumed one of them while we were talking, but I was saving the other one. I took it out of the box, and I put it on a napkin on the coffee table. And, uh, and he got up uh, to leave. I walked him out. We spent a minute on the porch talking. And then I came back in, and my donut was gone. Yeah. It was very sad. Uh, my first response was uh, bewilderment. I, uh, I didn't know what happened. And my kids weren't home, so it wasn't them. And uh, Melissa, was, I could hear her. She was still upstairs, so it wasn't, wasn't her. Um, and uh, I looked over at, at my dog, Buck, and um, he's the happiest I've ever seen. <laughs> he is, uh, he's licking his chops, and he's looking up at me with just so much gratitude. <laughs> and um, I uh, felt betrayed. Um, I, I, I felt, um, well, I felt like I do so much for him, and I demand so little, and uh, he just took my dog. And, uh, like, you know, like, this is a real threat I think we're facing in America today, is what's happening with our pets. Um, like, who is the master? Like, who walks who? Who feeds who? Who cleans up after who? Like, have you noticed, like, what's going on here? And, uh, I, like, I give him a roof over his head. I give him everything, and, uh, and that's how he treats me. Uh, see, the thing about Buck is he is driven by three desires. There's three desires that rule him. The first is water. He's a lab, and so you take him to a lake, and he's hard to get out of the water. Loves water. Uh, the second is fetch. Um, he will play fetch until he dies. I, I honestly believe that as long as I throw the bone, he will go and get it and bring it back, even if it means that his heart will explode inside of his chest. He will keep going, and it will kill him. See, that's the thing about his desires. His desires, like, they rule him. Like, they're in charge, right? And even to his own detriment. Like, and that's the third thing, food. Uh, food, like you, you put his dish down in front of him 30 seconds, it's gone. Like food just rules him. Uh, he goes around after we host house church and he just, he knows where all the kids ate and he just goes there and cleans up all the crumbs. The problem is, is he can't handle human food. He's got a sensitive tummy. And, and when he eats human food, bad things happen. Like one end or the other, invariably on a rug in our house, and I'll have to clean it up. And so I'm looking at Buck, and he's taken my donut, and now I'm waiting for the worst. And I, I know that it's coming, and I feel, I feel betrayed, and I feel angry, and I uh, sit, bad dog. And he just goes into his shame mode, and then I, uh, I dispelled him from the living room. Anyway, uh, I'm not mad at Buck right now because... Um, he gives me a sermon illustration. And sermon illustrations can be hard to come by. And so he's given me a sermon illustration, so I'm no longer mad. But uh, the reality is, here's the, the illustration. I am like Buck. Um, I can re be ruled by my desires. Uh, the, 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 the thing that I can go after even to my own detriment. Like I can hear that it's wrong. I could hear like uh, someone you know, giving words of wisdom into my ear saying this will only hurt you, this will only be detrimental uh, to you, and I can totally ignore that and go after it, and lo and behold, it hurts. Like, I can, I can, I can use my desires in such a way that I can pursue something that's ultimately 
destructive. And uh, I get that from this fallen sin nature that's within me. And I get that from my first parents, Adam and Eve. And if you go back to, to, to Genesis where we all get this when we discover uh, here's God and he creates the whole universe, right? And, and, and he doesn't do that because he's bored and he needs some sort of creative outlet for himself. Like he doesn't need to create the universe and yet he does that. And at the center of that creation, he puts uh, two beings that reflect what he's like, his image. And, and, and you notice that Adam and Eve, they weren't placed in like the Sahara Desert. He put them in a garden. And he gave them everything they could ever want, everything that they need, all, all of that is met in this place that he's provided for them. And, and he's, he's only said one thing, don't eat from this tree. This tree's bad for you. This tree will destroy you. This tree will hurt you. Don't, don't, don't eat from this tree. And yet it seems that when he's turned his back on them, here comes the liar, and he tells him, well, God's withholding something good from you. God's, he, he, he's withholding something that you want and that's, that, that's, that, that's good and that you, you should have, and they believe the lie, and they reach out, and they take it. And immediately, the, circum, the, the consequences begin to be felt. Sin and death enters their reality and, and, and ours as a result, but, but the most immediate thing felt is shame. Shame. And they go and they hide. Now, what was God's response, right? God comes walking in to the garden and he's just like, you know, looking at the tree, just like, there's two fruit missing. Where'd they go? Where's Adam and Eve? Normally they're, they're, they're right here. Where'd they go, right? And, and as it, you know, as they begin to talk about what happened, God already knows what happened, but as it, everything comes to light, what is God's response? Is God like bewildered, just like, I can't believe this, right? Is, is God like, I feel so betrayed right now. I get, I've given you everything. Like, I've, I've provided all of this stuff for you. And the moment you think my back is turned, you go and you do this. Is God like, well, now there's going to be a mess and I'm going to have to clean it up. Is God like, is, is he put back on his heels and he's, is, he, is he saying, well, now what? What do I do? Right? Is that God's response to all this? Um, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1. He writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, here's what Paul is saying in that really, really long run-on sentence. He's essentially saying this. 
there was a plan to redeem you. There's a plan to redeem you. There is, there's a plan to forgive you. There's a plan to adopt you. There's a plan to restore you. There's a plan to unite heaven and earth. There is a plan. And when was that plan made? Before the foundations of the earth. Before you rebelled and sinned. Before your first parents, Adam and Eve, believed the lie before they even took their first breath, before the foundations of the earth, there was a plan to redeem it. And though that plan was enacted in space and in time through what Jesus has done for us, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and through his ascension, that is the fulfillment of that plan, but that plan was created before the foundations of the earth. You see, if there's a plan, and that, and that plan can't be thwarted, that plan, it can't be changed, it can't be subverted, then that plan is as good as gold. It is, it is as good as the victory. See, the victory for us, when it comes to our greatest enemies of sin and death, has already been accomplished. The victory was won already. That's amazing. What Christ has done, what he's accomplished as a result of a, of a plan of, of, of the Godhead before the foundations of the earth. Like, that's amazing. And that's what Paul is saying here, is this, there's this mysterious plan, and now you've been let in on it. Now you understand it. Now you know it. And what that should do in you is that should create praise and glory and honor, and it should change you. Like, this is amazing. The plan of God. This is amazing. Well, this morning we're in 2 Samuel 17. You can turn there now. And where we've been at, we've been going through this, this series on 2 Samuel where we're, we're, we're really addressing a need for a better king. Our better king, and we know the big, better king is Jesus, and we know he's, he has come once, and we wait for him to come again. But this is all about our need for a, a better king. And, and David and Absalom and Saul, these characters, they sort of put that truth on display and re reinforce it every week. But where we pick up the story this week is um, uh, David is uh, living in exile. He's exiled himself from Jerusalem because his, his third-born son has uh, is, is decided he's going to be a better king. He's going to supplant David and, and on his throne. Um, he has stolen the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. He's uh, secured the, the elders of Israel to come to, to his side. He has um, anointed himself as king. He's marched on Jerusalem, and David has left it. He, he, he exiled himself from Jerusalem in order to save the city from the edge of the sword. So Absalom has the throne. He has the army. He has, he has the, the, the leadership and... Uh, this is where we sort of pick up the story this morning. Um, if you remember from, from last week, David, he left Jerusalem and he uh, went down into the Kidron Valley and then up to the, the Mount of Olives out of Jerusalem and he's weeping the whole way and he's barefoot and his head is covered and, and it can't get much worse than this when he hears the news. Ahithophel, your friend, has betrayed you. Your counselor, like the guy who's a part of your inner circle, like one of your, your closest people to you, he, he's betrayed you and he's gone and working, he's working for Absalom. And so David offers up this simple prayer. Chapter 15, verse 31, and it reads this, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Just one prayer. Simple, straightforward prayer. See, we, we talked about this at length last week where here's David and 
he, he sees what God is, is doing, and he's holding his life, um, his, his rule, uh, his, everything. He's holding it with an open hand, with the understanding that since God gave him his authority, God could take it away. What he understands is that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is in charge, and whatever God should do, it will be the right thing. And so he's holding this tension that God is sovereign, and yet he's also praying. He's asking. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. Do you see what's going on? Like, in one hand, he's holding on to the sovereignty of God that, is, that God is absolutely in control, and yet he's also holding on to the reality that he can pray and ask of God. Have you wrestled with that as a Christian? First of all, if you're here and you'd say that you're not a Christian, there are other questions to wrestle with before this one. But if you're a Christian, have you wrestled with that? That God is in control? That God is sovereign? And he wants you to pray? That there is this, this tension and faith and, uh, and trust as, as you understand he's got a plan and he's going to work it out, and yet he calls you and asks you to participate in the plan? That he's sovereign and he wants you to pray? See, this is a very difficult thing to wrap your mind around as a Christian. And, uh, and if it leads you to pride and arrogance, you don't understand it. But if it, if it leads you to humility and, and, and it leads you to grace and it leads you to glorify just how big and incredible your God is, then you're on the right trail. But David, he's holding on to these things, that God is sovereign and that he can pray. And so he prays. And what does he pray? He says, God, uh, thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, turn his, his counsel into foolishness. And God shows up. God answers his prayer. And Hushai, his friend, is put right in his path. Right? Well, um, chapter uh, 16 ends with verse 23. It says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel, Ahithophel is he's so wise that it seems like his counsel, like, it's like God's counsel. It's so, it's so powerful. It's so uh, strong. It's, it, it's so you know, worth listening to. It seems like it's God's counsel, but he's on the wrong team. He switched sides. He's working for Absalom. Well, chapter 17 begins, and we'll dive right in here. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So what's going on here is this is a war council. Uh, Absalom has, uh, he's taken the city, he's in the, 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 the palace, he's in the throne room, so to speak, and he has all the leaders of all the tribes of Israel. It seems everybody has abandoned David and, and, and surrounds uh, Absalom, so all the, the tribal elders are, are with him in this, this war council, and, and he has a new general over his army. His name is Amasa. We'll meet him uh, in a couple of weeks, but um, there, there's Ahithophel. This counselor, this, this, this person who, who, who seems to be able to communicate the very will of God in his counsel. And so Ahithophel, in this, this war council, begins to speak. 
and he outlines his sort of four-point plan. Right? The question of the day is, what do we do with David? David, he may not have a throne and he may not have an army, but as long as David is alive, he is still a threat, especially given what, uh, what Absalom did to David's concubines. We saw that last week. But David's still a threat. What do we do about this problem of David? And Ahithophel's counsel is, is this, these four points. The first point is this. Let me take a hand-selected, hand-picked team and go after him. He says, let me take 12,000 men. That may seem like a lot, but militarily not so much. I'm going to take 1,000 men from every tribe. I'm going to pursue David immediately. With, with just 1,000 men, uh, we, we can get ready to go just like that. We, 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 can, we can muster them together and we can hit the road and, and, and we can be on the move. So a small, hand-picked, uh, light, fast uh, military force. Okay? The second thing is, says, I'm going to lead them. I, I know David better than anybody. Um, I, I understand what's going on. I know him, so I'm going to lead this hand-selected team. The third thing is, we're going to have the element of surprise. David is tired. He's just left Jerusalem, and maybe he hasn't gotten very far. He probably is not very well supplied. And uh, if we go after him right now, we're going to have the element of surprise. And the fourth thing is that we're going to lead a targeted attack. In other words, we're not going to go after David's whole army, after all of his mighty men. We're just going after him. You cut the head off of the enemy, and everybody else will fall in line. A targeted attack specific just going after David. Right? So this is his counsel. And, uh, and militarily speaking, this is sound advice. Like history has shown this works. Um, 1940, Erwin uh, Rommel, who was a general at the time, he led uh, this, this invasion of Holland, Belgium, and then France. Anyway... He, he, his force moved with such speeds, with such quickness, that the Allied forces had their back pinned up against the English Channel in a place called Dunkirk. And it was at that moment that Hitler's uh, uh, advisors said, stop the attack, call Rommel back. And, uh, and that, was, that, that turned out to be the wrong thing. Had, had Rommel been allowed to advance his attack, um, it, it, it's very well possible that the, the war in Europe, it could have ended there. All right. Hello. It's a completely different sound. All right. I'm going to have to talk to my wife in this voice. Anyway, get rid of that. But, but that was a disaster. Like, uh, Rommel, he had them, and had he been allowed to advance, he could have wiped out pretty much all of, of at least Britain's army. Uh, however, uh, he stopped his attack, and there was this great big rescue. Maybe you've seen you know, documentaries or movies about it, uh, where uh, the, the, the armies of, of England, uh, Belgium, and France were rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk and taken back and allowed to regroup. Right? So it works. That, that was a tactic that, that came to be known as the Blitzkrieg. Um, in 1991, the U.S. used a similar approach when we invaded Iraq. It works. See, the, the counsel of Ahithophel, it, it works. It was solid counsel. And at first, it's accepted. But then, look at verse 5. Then Absalom called, uh, said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. 
So when David prayed and said, God, would you thwart the counsel of Ahithophel? Will you turn the counsel of Ahithophel into to foolishness? God answers his prayer. And right in his path, there's Hushai, his close friend. And he says, Hushai, will you go back to Jerusalem? And will you get in Absalom's ear? And will you thwart Ahithophel's counsel? Will you counter it? And he does. He goes back. Now, um, at first, Absalom's a little bit leery of Hushai. He's not invited into this war room. But he comes uh, at, at the request, and, and Absalom says, okay, here's what Ahithophel said to do. Here's his little four-point plan. What do you think? And in verse 6, it says, And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. So uh, Hushai, he, he has one responsibility. And that is going into this room knowing that Ahithophel has given wise counsel. He needs to counter it. And somehow he needs to make Absalom believe that the wise counsel of Ahithophel is foolish. And he needs to feed him foolishness and make him think it's wise. And he says, this time Ahithophel's counsel, not good. And then he spends the the next few uh, verses talking about, hey, you got to remember who your dad is. Do you remember who David is? Do you remember who his mighty men are? See, you go out after him, like he's already ready for you. Like he's already expecting you. You go out with him with just 12,000 men, it's not gonna end well for you. Like it's, it's likely that he's already set an ambush for you. And when he starts picking off your troops, then the fear of him is just gonna pervade your whole army. It's just gonna spread throughout your ranks. And this thing's gonna be over before it's even begun. Do you remember who your dad is? Do you remember what his mighty men are like? And so, uh, he, he, he then says, well, this is going to be my plan. Verse, uh, verse 11, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, Then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Uh, Hushai says, you know, here's my plan. And and the first first part of my plan is uh, Absalom, Ahithophel shouldn't lead, you should lead. And it's it's almost like, it's almost like Hushai is, is taking Absalom and putting his arm around him and he's just saying like, imagine this. Right? Do, do you see like all the visual language that's here? There's just, he's like, he's bringing a scenario to life for Absalom. Imagine you riding in front of an army. Imagine that chariot of yours all polished up and shiny and ready to go. And there you are, your hair just blowing in the breeze as you ride this chariot, right? You should go, not Ahithophel. And the second point is, is this, not 12,000 men, all the men. From Dan to Beersheba, every single soldier, all of them. This could be the biggest army Israel has ever led. And there you are on a chariot, hair blowing, leading this army. This will be so glorious. Can you imagine Absalom? And, he's, and, and, and the third part of this is, and, and, and you're gonna wreak mass destruction. 
right? There's going to be mass casualties that you're going to incur. You know, anybody who has ever sided with David, today is the day they die. Mass destruction. And this will send a message. Nobody will ever threaten your reign and rule. We'll, we'll go so far as we'll even tear down a city for you. Even if it's one of our cities. We'll surround it and we'll pull it down into the ground. And from here on out, nobody will ever stand against the great and power, powerful Absalom. What is Hushai doing? He's playing to his pride. Right? He's, he, he's plucking the strings of his arrogance. He's playing to his pride. Um, and it works. Verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel's counsel was wise, but Hushai's counsel was glorious. And see, given the choice between feeding the pride of someone's desire, which will they choose? But we oftentimes have such insatiable desires and that the enemy knows how to feed that. Wisdom doesn't have a chance, does it? Well, uh, the verse goes on, verse 14 says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Now, this is really interesting. Now, on the one hand, you got Absalom who he thinks he's God's anointed, right? Um, he's not praying or anything like that, but he thinks, you know, he's God's anointed. You got a, a bunch of leaders of Israel. They think that they're God's people, but they're not praying or anything like, and God is actually, he seems very absent from this war council, right? And so on the one hand, um, the, 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 the good advice of Ahithophel is being thwarted. Wisdom is being thwarted by pride and arrogance, which is going to be Absalom's downfall. On the one hand, you have the human perspective of, of, of Absalom shooting himself in the foot. Like his destruction is going to come about because he messed up. But on the other hand, what we see here is, according to the author, is, is that it's God who's responsible. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. It's the, it's the Lord who wants to bring harm on Absalom. So, so where, does, where does the responsibility lie? Is it, is it on Absalom for his poor choices, or is it on God and his control of the situation? We hold those things in, in tension, right? Now, the, the scene continues um, in verses 15 through 22. Uh, uh, Hushai doesn't know what Absalom's going to choose. And so he sends a message to David. Um, and, and through his, his priest, Zadok and, and Abiathar, uh, they communicate to their sons. And there's, the sons, there's a series of sort of dramatic events. But the message gets to David. And the message is simply this. Uh, here's what Ahithophel's advice was. Here's my advice. I don't know which one Absalom's going to choose, but act accordingly. Like, get up, cross the Jordan River, move out. Don't stay put. Um, but, but Hushai's advice, if you take a step back and you, and you look at it, what he's essentially doing is he's buying time. Um, you know, one of the things he's doing is telling Absalom, you should lead this army um, because, you know, you're the most prideful, arrogant, and inexperienced guy we have. So you should totally do it. And um, you should lead this army, and you should take the time to amass everybody. 
from Dan to Beersheba, like, can you imagine how much time it would take to organize that army and get it ready to move out? He's buying David time. And, and, and essentially, David, he now, he gets to pick the battlefield. He gets to pick the, the spot to defend. And here, this is other sort of, you know, sound military, you know, uh, situation here where, you know, what we've seen in our history is insurgent militaries, people who are good at running and hiding, can put up a pretty big fight against a, a vastly superior numerical force. If a battle is going to be on an open plane, then yes, vast numbers will, will conquer. But if you uh, choose the battlefield like it's like a hill, hillside country or a rocky country like Afghanistan or a forest like what we're going to see here, then an insurgent, small, mobile type of military can succeed over powerful numbers. Um, that's for next week. I'll save that. I don't want to get into that. What's interesting, though, is the whole battle, three verses long. The, the council, the war council, turns out to be longer than the war. And it actually determines what happens. What happens in that war council, that's what determines what ha- the war. So let's look at Ahithophel, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So uh, before the orders are given, right? Um, when it's determined who Shai's advice is the one that they're going to go with, Ahithophel's advice, that's not going to be followed. The, the minute that order is given, Ahithophel knows it's lost. Be- before uh, anybody sends out to get troops and muster them, before any uh, generals confer with each other, before like they even meet David, the battle is already lost for Ahithophel. Ahithophel basically says, well, we're all dead. We had a plan that was wise and would have worked. There was a plan of wisdom, but Absalom has shown a plan of vain glory and pride. And because of that, we're all dead. And so Ahithophel goes home, puts his house in order, knowing that when David would resume his place on the throne, he would probably be killed for treason. And so he's just you know, taking care of business for him. And he kills himself. And in Ahithophel's eyes, the battle is already lost. The flip side of that, though, is that for David, it's already won. It's already won. Fast forward a thousand years. And at just the right moment, Paul writes in the Philippians that, uh, that, that uh, the, the Son of God came and he emptied himself and became and took the form of a servant. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. God takes on flesh. God becomes human. Fully God, fully human. Another thing to, that's difficult to wrap your mind around. But he becomes human. And he becomes small. He becomes vulnerable. He becomes weak. He becomes mortal. And the enemy of God sees him in this state and he goes to tempt him in the wilderness. We see that in Matthew chapter 4. But he's not successful. And so what happens? One of Jesus' own guys, a part of his inner circle, betrays Jesus. Incited by Satan, Judas hands him over. And another council is convened. And again, the leaders of Israel come together, this time to say, what should we do with this Jesus? And they throw all sorts of false accusations at him and they condemn him 
and they make it so that he's led outside the city and crucified. And as Jesus is hanging from that tree, he prays. Remember, he went to that cross understanding the sovereign will of God that scene is played out in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. That his father is sovereign and in control, and yet he prays, Father, forgive them. And God answers his prayer. He forgives them. But because Jesus becomes the sacrifice that atones for them. And for us, the sword comes down on him. And that's the victory. It doesn't look like a victory. It looks like a defeat. It looks like the battle's lost. But three days later, he rises. And then he ascends. And he's king on the throne in heaven. And if you're in him and he's in you, then there's a king in, that sits on the throne of your heart. But you see what Jesus has done. He's carried out the plan. But the plan was written before the foundations of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That God's response to our sin is like, well, I don't know what to do about this. He's always known what to do. Do you see how he's acted toward us? Can you trust that? See, in a word, this is about hope. I talked about this last week. Last week was about the curse that David had to bear up under, right? But it was a, pointed towards the hope of this week, and here's the hope. Do you see the hope in this passage? Now, I'm going to ask you to uh, pass the communion trays now. And in a moment, we're going to partake of it together. But as you hold them, I want you to meditate on this. Think about where David's at in 2 Samuel 17. He's, he's sitting on the edge of the Jordan River. His kingdom's in shambles. Uh, he doesn't know what the future holds. Um, the lives of his family uh, could be taken at any minute. Like his back's up against the wall. Like his circumstances are really quite bleak. And yet he's holding out hope that God is still sovereign and in control and God's will will be done no matter what. And it's good. And he can pray. He can call out. He can ask of God, Right? And that's where he's sitting in this moment. Now, where are you sitting in this moment? Where are you at today? Like, what broken relationships do you have that need mending? Like, where are you at with your emotional health? Where are you, where are you at struggling with maybe anxiety or depression? Where are you at with work? Do you have something stressful hanging over your head? Where are you at with, the, with your material needs? Are you making ends meet? Are you financially okay? Or is that a burden to you? Like, where are you at in your circumstances this morning? Now, let's take a step back and look at the micro picture of the gospel or the macro picture of the gospel. Let's zoom back. And let me ask you this. What would happen if the king came back today? What would happen to your broken relationships if you and that person are right standing before the king? What would happen to the anxiety and the depression that you're experiencing right now if you're standing before the king? What would happen that that work project that's hanging over your head if you're standing before the king? 
Like you look at whatever circumstances in your life, when you're standing before the king, what matters? See, there's only two things, two dangers that you face. The first is your sin. How have you acted or not acted that has offended a holy, righteous, perfect God? What have you said or not said that has offended a holy, righteous, perfect God? How have you hurt someone that a holy, righteous, perfect God loves? It's your sin. And the second thing that, that stands a threat to you is the consequences for that sin. What are the consequences for, for offending a holy, righteous, eternal God? But an eternal separation and an eternal kind of death. See, those are the only two things that matter in that moment. But guess what? You had victory over them before you were even born. You had victory over them because the plan of God, which could not be thwarted, was written before the foundations of the earth. Do you see? You see how beautiful that is, how powerful that is. Does that change anything about how you see your circumstances? See, there's hope in that. But as you zoom back in and you look at, at the circumstances that you're facing right now on, a, on the micro level, whatever it is, can you know with all certainty that he's sovereign? Think about it. He's sovereign enough to come up with a plan that won the victory long before anything bad happened. He's that sovereign. Can you trust him with what you're going on in your life? Can you hold on to, to the fact that his will will be done and it's good? And can you hold on to the fact that he invites you to pray? He invites you to call out. He invites you to ask. That's hope. That's hope. As, as you partake of communion today, those elements that you hold in your hand. See, what, what you hold in your hand is, is a statement of two words. It is, I need. I need. Jesus says, this is my body. It's given for you. Do you need that? Or are you trying to say, well, my body will cover it? Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you that gives you a new relationship. Do you think, ah, oh, no, my blood can cover it? See, when you look at Ahithophel's council and Hushai's council, uh, in Ahithophel's council, there's a hint of the gospel where Ahithophel says, I will go and do the work for you and only one will lose his life for the sake of men. There's a, there's a hint. There's this, this smacking of the gospel and what is Absalom's advice? No, thanks. I'd rather go. I'd rather lead my army. I would rather go get the glory for myself. You see, the Christian is, is the one who, who, who knows what they need. They know what's been accomplished for them and they reach out and they take it. And they say, I need you, Jesus. The alternative is to say, I don't need you. I can do it myself and to pursue vain glory in order to save and redeem and ultimately provide yourself with your own throne. If you're here this morning, you would say, I need. Then a moment, I invite you to, to meditate on that, to hold in your hand 
These are symbols of God's sovereignty. These are symbols of God acting in time and space in order to redeem you. These are symbols of his control, of his plan worked out in the events of time. Like These are symbols of his power, and yet you can reach out in those moments and say, I need you. You can pray, and he will hear. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come, and we're going to sing. Because as Paul says, when you discover this mysterious plan, and you are brought into what it means, that before the foundations of the earth, God has given you victory over sin and death through what he would do for you. When you discover that, the right response is to praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a plan. And it's not a plan I would come up with. In my plan, I would be able to save myself. But I'd fail. That you would send your one and only son to pay the debt that I owed. That he would die so that I could go free. This is your plan. And it works. And it saves and it redeems. And it means that I'm forgiven and that I'm adopted and that I get to experience your glory forever. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Holy Spirit, empower me with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to overcome my sin and my doubt and my fear, to look at the circumstances of my life and recognize that those circumstances from a human standpoint seem bleak. From the big standpoint, it's already won. In Jesus' name, amen.